0: And I'm Cal Rastiala. And this is International, International Law Behind, Behind the Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome to International Law Behind the Headlines. This is co host Cal Rastiala, and I'm really pleased to have with us today uh Gianluca Berci, who is the or was uh, the legal counsel at the World Health Organization and now is a professor at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. Is that right, Gianluca? Are you still at the Graduate Institute? Yes, yes I am. Perfect. And uh, really an expert on international law in the global health realm. And what I've invited uh, him to talk about today is something that I think is on the minds of many listeners, which is the coronavirus outbreak. And what we'll discuss is the international legal framework surrounding uh, epidemics and pandemics uh, like this. So uh, a topic I think of great interest to many to many people and especially to many international lawyers. So, John Luca, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Sure, my and yeah, I thought what we would start with is really just the basics. Uh, you had a lot of experience at WHO. You know this area well, and maybe you could just explain for us uh, what is the international law uh, that uh, that governs this area? What does it look like? What kind of restraints uh, do countries have? Uh, with particular attention to the issue of travel bans. And I, I, I know there was a piece in The Lancet, I think you were part of that, uh, criticizing certain governments, I guess, uh, I think it's fair to say, for, for taking actions that are arguably inconsistent with international law. So give us a flavor of what the kind of restraints are on what states can do in this realm.
1: Sure. So the main legal instrument... Uh is applicable to try to control the international spread of disease is the international health regulations, that are not terribly well known to many international lawyers, but actually quite innovative instrument. This was adopted by the um, the World Health Assembly, WHO's plenary body, in 2005, entered into force in 2007, and is in force for all 194 uh, WHO member states plus. Liechtenstein and uh, the Holy See. So really a very global universal instrument. This is the last version, if you want, of a long string of uh, sanitary regulation and sanitary treaties that goes back actually to the end of the 19th century. So the international cooperation uh, to prevent epidemics and, and you know, control them if they take place is nothing new. Uh, but the current IHR are kind of innovative because they are very open-ended. They can um, apply to any event uh, that leads to international spread of disease, even if it is an act of bioterrorism or a chemical spill in an international river and so on. Uh, as you can imagine, this wasn't an easy negotiation. There were many things at stake, including sovereignty, including trade, including biosecurity and so on. So. Uh, the IHR, as you call it, is a bit of a compromise solution that gives a lot of power to the WHO secretariat. For example, you remember the WHO declared the current coronavirus as a public health emergency at the end of January. That's a power given right. to WHO by the IHR. And to make what we call temporary recommendations, which WHO did. For example, don't um, suspend travel and trade. But then states sometimes, actually quite often, I must say, uh, don't exactly follow what WHO preaches. So that's uh, an open question. If you can't, we can follow up on how to qualify legally these measures that sort of diverge or go beyond the WHO recommendations. Uh,
0: I guess just a couple of technical issues so we understand the, the, the context here. Uh, the IHR, is it a treaty under international
1: law? Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually... Um, I would say um, a secondary source, like a Security Council resolution, but it's legally binding under the WHO Constitution. On that, there is no doubt. Uh, it's binding on as as a, as a treaty.
0: Okay, interesting. So it derives its legal effect and legal power from the larger WHO Constitution, which is a a treaty under, let's yeah. say, Vienna Convention understandings yeah. of treaty. Okay, yeah. perfect. And so. Um, so, in terms of the, the process that you just mentioned within WHO, so, so it gives WHO, or this, this structure gives WHO a certain amount of power to declare uh, a global emergency, and once that's declared, then what kicks in at that point? What, uh, does that enable states to take certain actions they couldn't previously take as a legal matter?
1: Well, first of all, the IHR, I think we need to clarify the scope, because sometimes there are over-expectations of what it can do. It's largely an instrument of alert. Uh, And to try to ensure like a coordinated response, precisely to avoid these irrational, excessive measures that sometimes do more harm than good. So when an emergency has been declared, uh, some states have their own national system in place. For example, they have locked in contracts with pharmaceutical companies to try to have sort of a... Uh, advanced purchase of vaccines and, and other medicine, but that's, you know, a national issue. At an international level, under the IHR, the main consequence is the WHO issues, these temporary recommendations. Any states go beyond, do things that would otherwise breach a number of IHR provisions. Um, there is an article, Article 43, which is a bit of an accountability mechanism. Um, it allows states to do that. But they need to report the rationale for doing that, and they need to uh, reconsider in good faith those measures if they are prompted by WHO, if these measures are clearly excessive and so on. It was a compromise solution, very difficult, negotiated at the last moment, so it's quite imperfect. And... WHO historically is a pretty differential organization to its member state. It's not into naming and shaming, antagonistic behavior. So there is also not much pressure on these states to, to reconsider the action. Uh, there's not much naming and shaming. And the political pressure, if it takes place, it's more at a bilateral level or sometimes through different institutions, for example, WTO, when these measures lead to a embargoes or a restriction on trade. Great. Great. I do
0: want to circle back on that issue in a little bit. So in terms of the coronavirus currently, would you characterize the reaction of most states, most WHO members, which effectively are virtually every state? Uh, as being generally consistent with uh, the international legal framework, inconsistent, or how would you sort of assess the situation right now?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, this information is a bit anecdotal because um, there is no sort of published list, for example, by WHO on what states are doing. So we see it in the press, um, we see it in uh, uh, statements by this, this country, but we are missing a clear sort of... List of who is doing what. So certain countries have left the the, the border pretty open, but they do, for example, uh, screening of incoming passengers from India or quarantine uh, for certain groups, for example, that coming back from China and and, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, other countries have uh, suspended uh, travel. For example, the United States has more or less blocked travel from, um, from 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 people coming from China, not just from Wuhan, but it's a as I understand, the whole of China, most of China. Um, so there's quite a variety of, um, of measures. And actually, I wish there was more transparency. Uh, would be easier to, to reach some conclusion on, on uh, what is uh, arguably lawful or not on, on the level of compliance and, and the limit of, of lawful behavior under the IHR. But this is, unfortunately, kind of missing.
0: That's really interesting. Now, earlier you mentioned about some reporting requirements. So under the current system, uh, WHO members are not required when an emergency is declared to to essentially state their policy. So there's no, no kind no. of clearinghouse for that. Is that something that's been considered in the past?
1: Uh, no, you're right. There is no sort of... Um, uh, the legal requirement to report on, on what they are doing. Um, state WHO requires the states to uh, report every year on, on their implementation in general terms with the IHR, but it's fairly broad, mm, okay. and so they can choose to, 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 to specify what they're doing in response to a particular crisis or, or, or not. And WHO sort of compiles them and make like it gives like a macro picture uh, to the health assembly. It doesn't go into the specificity of what what individual states are doing. So uh, where the reporting requirement kicks in is if states. Uh, do what I described before under Article 43, so clearly go beyond or diverge from WHO recommendation, do things that otherwise are in breach. So they have like a good faith obligation to report these measures because they, uh, you know, they would otherwise possibly breach the IHR. Or the secretariat can be proactive and reaching out because it finds out from the media and so on. Uh, But this is very specific um, and narrow uh, reporting requirement. I see, I see. So, oh, I guess one other question
0: that I, I realize, I don't know how often this happens, when was the last time that there was such a global emergency declared? Or let's say how often in the last decade or two? Is this something
1: that's very rare? Yeah, well, the, as I said, the IHR entered into force in 2007, so we are almost 13 years of, of implementation. And we had six emergencies. Uh, okay. You may remember the H1N1 influenza in 2009, 2010. That was really the baptism of fire or the new or the revised IHR. Then we had um, Ebola in 2014. Everybody remembers a global panic there. Uh, at the same time, the same year, uh, uh, poliomyelitis was declared an emergency. Many people sort of frowned because it's nothing new, but we were losing control over the attempt to eradicate the disease, so that was seen enough of a reason to declare it an emergency. And then we had um, Zika in Brazil that well, didn't last very long, it lasted only a few months. We had the uh, Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It is still an emergency, but it's being controlled, apparently. And now we have the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. So six emergencies in, in in about 13 years.
0: And when an emergency is declared, is there a sort of time limit, or does the, does the WHO itself have to then uh, uh, essentially reverse it and say the emergency is over?
1: Well, yes, it has to declare that it's over. Um, and so these these temporary recommendations that I was mentioning had to be reviewed every three months. Every three months, there is an opportunity to bring back a committee of experts that advises the Director General on this and that so sort of follows the epidemiological situation, whether it should still remain an emergency or not. But it has to be explicitly terminated and, and reversed at some point. Great. Great. So
0: so as you, I think you said a moment ago, in the case of the Congo, uh, there is still an ongoing yeah. emergency. Yes. Did I hear right? Yes.
1: The, the open, let's say, pending emergency is still poliomyelitis, which is, frankly, an anomaly. And I think it was politically uh, used to put pressure on Pakistan, which is the, 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 okay. the biggest endemic country and the reason for the possible failure of the eradication campaign. So it's polio, it's uh, the Ebola, and now, of course, the, this COVID-19 coronavirus.
0: Let's turn to the issue of quarantine because I think that's attracted a lot of media attention. People are obviously very interested in that and, and concerned about what it might mean. And so, you know, here, I'm here in California. I know we've had uh, a number of American uh, a, a planes come in to a local air base, and, and the individuals coming from China have been quarantined. There's, of course, the cruise ship issue. Uh, so, who, so these, I assume from what you said so far, that these efforts at quarantine internally uh, internally within a given state are to some degree governed by the IHR. But can you elaborate a little on that and, and how much latitude do states have and, and do you think those, those measures are appropriate?
1: The states, I think, have quite a lot of discretion in taking these measures um, because, after all, quarantines are like the historical measures to try to to stop the disease at the border. So there are there are very sort of valid reasons to impose these measures. Um, to a certain extent they follow under the IHR, but the IHR sometimes, in terms of its uh, scope of application, talks about travellers. And in the other cases it talks about persons. So there is a bit of an ambiguity there where certain measures are relevant when they're applied to travelers, to so people travelling internationally or whether to protect anybody within the territory of a state. So there is a bit of of an ambiguity there. But be as it may, uh, in a way, uh, states should, besides the the IHR, obviously look at their own human rights obligations when they impose quarantine, because these are obviously uh, limits to personal freedom, to uh, freedom of movement, and so on. Um, and so they should apply the sort of normal criteria uh, to, to, to assess the legitimacy and proportionality and necessity of their actions to, to, to protect the community, to protect public health as a global value, as a community value, versus individual rights. And it's interesting that, um, at least in the media, the human rights element is largely, uh, I haven't seen it mentioned very much. No, um, I haven't either. In particular, not for China, which is at this point is quarantined in about sixty million people, so the population of Italy is being quarantined in, in china and so that, that element I think it is a point that is kind of missing from the from the conversation
0: yeah it 's really interesting that you raised that because i I have noticed a couple of stories that have pointed to they 've never used human rights language that i, I haven 't searched, but I, I certainly have not seen that. Uh, but one or two stories have mentioned that people in Wuhan itself feel that they are essentially being sacrificed, that, that there's this containment effort, and uh, at least whoever was interviewed by the particular reporter had the sense of they're being sacrificed for the greater uh, good, I guess, of the health of the Chinese population, something like that, which, of course, raises so many uh, difficult human rights issues, uh, and especially with something like this that's, that seems quite contagious and yet is not actually so deadly. You know, it's just a, it's a complicated set of questions. So I completely agree with you. That seems absent and important. Is that something that's uh, discussed widely in the global health world, this kind of intersection or tension between
1: human rights, law on one hand, and let's say global health concerns on the other? It's not been discussed very much within WHO, and as far as I can see, and within the global health community in the sense of practice and policy, uh, because it's a community in particular, at the technical level that is not terribly familiar with human rights. Sometimes it's seen actually at the destruction as a risk of politicizing good technical public health work so the the, the human rights argument is, is is lacking a little bit um, scholars are looking at that um, and there is work um, in progress I think also to look at the criteria to judge the legitimacy of what countries are doing uh, the legality under the IHR and and so on but uh, WHO, for example, has been um, has been sort of praising every single time the director general makes a statement. Have been praising China for what they are doing. Obviously, you can see also political intent to keep China engaged, not to antagonize them and to recognize the incredible efforts they are putting into this. Uh, But then, you know, it makes the humanized scrutiny a bit more difficult because the WHO, with this sort of epistemic authority, comes and says, these are necessary measures, they're all fine, absolutely. Uh, Then it sort of stacks the, 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 the... the deck a bit in favor of China, maybe a bit too much. An important point is, um, so how these measures are administered. It's not like a one-size-fits-all. If these quarantines can be seen as necessary and, um, you know, during an emergency, sometimes you need to err on the side of caution. It's a no-regret policy like WHO does, but are people being fed? can they um, they do the food shopping? do they have water? Do they have access to basic services uh, so it's the modalities of how the, the the restrictions take place that to me can make a big difference into assessing their consistency with human rights standards. it's not just are they quarantined or not, but how are they quarantined
0: and in your judgment is the Chinese quarantine now what you from what you can tell uh, consistent with, let's say, best practices, as they're understood
1: in Geneva? Hard to say, because, you know, you basically see what they hear what, the, what China is saying, and there is no real sort of independent verification, but it seems that the conditions, in particular in Wuhan, in the area which is under strictest control, are quite, quite harsh. And as you said, there is a sense that, uh, yes, these people are being sacrificed um, for the, to protect the community, and so be it. That's the eternal dilemma of public health versus in human rights versus individual entitlements, and sometimes the interests of the community have to prevail. But the, what, we, what, what I've seen, many anecdotally from the media, is a pretty sort of harsh restrictions, and some people are saying that you know maybe excessively harsh. That you know there can be adjustment to make them more more humane. Um, Mm-hmm. So it's not easy to to, 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 to judge that these things. I've been hearing a lot of opinions, in particular from uh, technical colleagues in WHO. They say, you know, be careful to be too harsh on China because what you do in an emergency sometimes can be easily sort of second guessed after the crisis is over. But during the crisis, you need to give a lot of sort of deference and discretion to countries to, to apply the measures that... They think it's appropriate. And I was listening the other day to a webcast from the Munich uh, Security Conference, and uh, there was a town hall meeting on the coronavirus outbreak, and one of the speakers was a deputy foreign minister of China. And he made it very clear that he expects the, the world to recognize what China is doing, not only for its own benefit, but for the benefit of the world. They clearly said, if you have a handful of cases outside China, it's largely because of what China is doing in containing the virus. So also this aspect has to be taken into account and I think respected.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So just to clarify, if if it turned out that coronavirus or COVID-19, as it's called now, is, uh, is even more infectious and more deadly than we realized, maybe more like an Ebola or something, and if China or any country for that matter... Uh, essentially sealed up an entire city or province and essentially sacrificed those people within that border uh, to contain it, there's nothing in the WHO rules or other rules that would bar that. Is Am I right? Is that that is actually a permissible practice?
1: Yeah, I think the sort of WHO rules are agnostic about that. Uh, there's no sort of statutory system to assess... Uh, measures like what China is taking within its territory. Uh, if People look at that, it's from a public health effectiveness. Is it containing the, the outbreak or not? It doesn't seem to be containing the outbreak because the, the, the figures skyrocket one day after the other. And the epicenter yes. of the outbreak is continues to be Wuhan and the Hubei province. So these measures evidently are not slowing down the spread of virus within that particular area. So something is going wrong there. Similar as the this this ship in the in the in the port of Yokohama. Uh, how can you keep more than three thousand people confined to the cabins and having figures of infected passengers increase every day? So, uh, some measures were not appropriate. I think that, they, that there was some, some screw up there. So you need also to consider that aspect. Sure,
0: sure. Let's um, turn to trade. You mentioned that a moment ago. Uh, so obviously, the movement of persons is is maybe the most salient, most most concerning issue. But clearly, this emergency, largely because of China's incredibly significant economic role, but I can imagine any sort of epidemic or pandemic having economic implications, as they often do locally, but then also in terms of trade. And um, I know here, even in Los Angeles, the port uh, is apparently, you know, we're the largest entry point for goods from China, and there's a significant slowdown. Uh, for a whole host of reasons. So what, does the, what is the connection between the World Trade Organization and the World Health Organization in this regard? And are states, I guess, able to take whatever trade measures they want uh, subject to WTO rules, or are those rules trump somehow in a global emergency by WHO rules? So I guess, in essence, how do these two bodies of law interact, and who, who ends up on top?
1: Yeah, good question. And this was one of the, uh, I think, biggest points during the negotiation, what kept negotiators until four in the morning. There's no sort of clear institutionalized link between the two regimes. But it's fair to say that the IHR were drafted with WTO very much in mind to avoid situation of incompatibility. The state would have to choose between the IHR and uh, the WTO agreements, because there was a clear conflict. So there is a requirement of a risk assessment of basing um, uh, actions on science under the IHR as much as there are under the agreement on sanitary and phytosanitary measures or the agreement on, on GATT, for that matter. Uh, so there, there has clearly been a, um, an effort on the part of the negotiators of the IHR to ensure uh, consistency. Um, it's interesting because so I don't think that uh, trade restrictions are an issue for coronavirus because there they, are no sort of commodities that are incriminated as vector of the virus. It was the case for a bit during the h one influenza because of this, um, at the beginning, this association with, with pigs and pork meat. Uh, and I believe China, for example, and other countries blocked the import of Canadian and American pork. And there was immediately a reaction by these countries in the SPS committee, the committee administering the agreement on sanitary and phytosanitary measures, that there was no scientific basis and that the IHR did not justify those measures. So I think that actually sometimes the the actions and reactions ensure uh, rationality and and proportionality in, in health measures. So one thing does not trump the other. They very much sort of applicable in parallel, but with, with an effort in, in consistency, as they sure.
0: The w, WTO and WHO uh, rules and regulations on, let's say, SPS uh, and the IHR are really fairly compatible and both take a fairly scientific approach.
1: Yeah, that was clearly the intention. Then it's obvious that sometimes uh, states take um, excessive measures or maybe they use a, a, an outbreak um, as a pretext for protect, protectionist measures, then when the disciplines in the, the WTO agreements I think are very useful, also as a corrective uh, to actions taken supposedly uh, under the, the frame of, of the IHR.
0: Just thinking about the Chinese dimension of this, I know that Taiwan is not a WHO member, and I'm assuming Taiwan is the largest country that isn't. Am I right? Or are there are many other countries of comparable size that are not WHO members?
1: Well, as you know, for the United Nations system, uh, sorry to give you the party line, but Taiwan is not a country. It's a province of China.
0: Yes, I know that is the party line. Uh, All of that said, having visited Taiwan, that's not not a common view in Taiwan. And of course, Taiwan's a very big place and it's very close to China. So I'm just curious. This must be a complicated issue within WHO. And just as a a practical matter, uh, when you have a place of that size outside of the system, uh, it does seem to pose some challenges. So I'm just curious, how does that work? So if it turned out that Taiwan was the locus of a variant of coronavirus or Taiwan became a particular vector in some way, how does the WHO system deal with that?
1: Yeah, as you said, it's a very complicated system. And I was at the forefront of those complications as former legal counsel of WHO. Because WHO, precisely because of what you're saying, has kept the the door ajar for Taiwan, unless other international organizations where the door is firmly shut. Um, So, for example, uh, we have an arrangement. There was sort of an informal arrangement with China that would allow WHO to communicate directly with Taiwan under the IHR. But as obviously subject to some form of of, uh, approval, Uh, by the Chinese government, which is very strict in enforcing the one-China policies you can imagine. So there are channels, there are tools um, to communicate with the Taiwanese health authority in case of need. But we have to respect certain protocols because, frankly, the secretariat is very, basically no discretion in this matter. Uh, China... I heard a statement made by the Chinese delegation in the executive board of WHO a couple of weeks ago, uh, makes it very clear that in constant touch with uh, Taipei, with Taiwan, and so the constant communication, and so the, there is no sense, the, it's, 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 it's a politicization when Taiwan says we are left out of the or the of the, of the picture, we can become a, uh, a global risk, and uh, we are the receiving end of global risks. Uh, China takes pains to deny that and to say that there is constant communication. Is there a communication with Taiwan that can safely go through China? Uh, but be as it may, uh, there are also channels that have been agreed with the Chinese to, to talk directly to Taiwan. Great. I guess, final question this has been a really
0: terrific discussion, and I'm just curious. You You mentioned a few times that in the negotiations of the international health regulations, obviously many compromises were made a uh, complicated set of issues that really touch on core sovereignty interests, including the movement of persons, which has always been something that, that states have enormous discretion over. So, I'm just curious if you could reflect a little bit on, on what you think is missing from the IHR. So, if there were a review conference next year and states were, member states were reconsidering those regulations, uh, what would you like to see
1: that isn't there now? I have pretty strong views on this, but I seem to be in a minority. Um, and so it's clear that the IHR have several flaws. And it's not surprising because it was very difficult to revise them from the old version. And basically, the text was approved in a year and a half because of the momentum created by the SARS outbreak. So if they are mm-hmm. not perfect, it is no surprise. I think what should be changed is first, this idea of the emergency. I think the concept of of emergency has not served the world well. It's too fraught. It's too loaded. Uh, It makes it difficult to think of alternative mechanism because now it's either an emergency or nothing. And reality is more complex. So to go beyond this concept of emergency and to have a more nuanced graduate system of alert. The second, it needs to incorporate a system of compliance assessment. There is no... um, sort of institutionalized system to assess compliance as part of the IHR. There will be sort of voluntary workarounds, but that to me is not the same as having something under the framework of the the IHR. And third, to have more clarity on these travel bans or these additional measures. And now it's really ambiguous and to have a clearer system uh, to to assess compliance and non-compliance. Otherwise, I think we risk to having a marginalization of the IHR uh, and more reliance on the typical sort of normative uh, processes of WHO that don't necessarily ri- rely on the, on the, on the IHR. I think there is also a need, uh, a question of financing, because the WHO has to play its role. It needs money and it needs flexible money, not earmarked by donors and so on. And that's something that the IHR was not necessarily supposed to generate, but certainly has not been generated. So, also, this aspect uh, I think is essential if we want to keep the credibility of the system.
0: Wow, that's a fantastic set of suggestions. So, so first of all, thank you so much, John Luca, for coming on and clarifying so many of these things that I, I know I personally was, was quite uh, confused or ignorant about, and I imagine a lot of listeners were as well. You really did a terrific job. So, uh, I hope to have you on the podcast again, uh, not around coronavirus. I hope it comes to a to a quick end, uh, but I'm sure that health issues will uh, will emerge uh, on the international landscape in the future, and we'd love to have you back. With pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.